Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show's Coach Chat with my man, Tom Randall. I aim to do one of these about every month or so as we can kind of coordinate our schedules. And these episodes are typically reserved just for patrons and subscribers of the show. But today I'm releasing this one widely because I wanted all of you non-patrons to get a sense for what you get when you support the pod. And also I just thought this conversation with Tom was really fun and insightful and I'm excited to have more people benefit from it. Now, Tom needs no introduction, so I'm not going to waste your time on it, though if you would like a rundown of his accomplishments on and off the rock, you can check out the expert analysis episode that he did for this show at the end of last season, where he looked back on season two through the lens of training. It's a really good one. Check that one out if you haven't. So today, Tom and I are just casually connecting for a monthly coach check-in. I've been working with Lattice for, I mean, honestly, a couple of years now. I first had them program what are called like their light programs or their sport training program, basically like a 12-week uh, training plan that just got sent to my phone through the crimped app. And I've just had fantastic experiences and, and really good gains through doing that. And then more recently, I've started now working with their performance coaching plan, I think it's called, where now I work one-on-one -on -one with my coach. Her name's Roz. I've known her for a couple of years now. And it's a little bit more individualized, but you know, kind of similar to, to what I was doing before on those light plans. And so today, Tom and I are just looking at how my training's going, what's working, what's been a struggle, and how I should be looking at the upcoming training as it relates to my goal, which if you've been listening, uh, you know, is to try to send my first 13A this fall. But that said, the concepts that we're talking about today really apply to anyone. Whatever your age, whatever your climbing style or your goals, we're covering energy system training and testing, when to switch to a different training focus based on some simple tests that you can do throughout your training, how things like life stressors play into your training, your performance, and what to focus on in order to stay strong as we age, which we're learning through kind of taking a look at Chris Sharma's recent ascent of 15C Sleeping Lion at nearly 42 years old. How can we as aging climbers or as future aging climbers, depending on what age you are right now, how can we stay strong and perform well into those years? And then we wrap things up with a really interesting set of questions submitted to Tom by patrons of The Struggle. This Coach Chat is sponsored by patrons and subscribers of the show. If that's you, thank you. I love you. You get access to our ongoing series of Coach Chats, our growing library of pro clinics featuring the best climbers and coaches in the game. I don't know why they say yes to doing those shows, but they do. And I'm so grateful they are because it's really become such a fantastic library of resources for all of us as we're trying to level up our training and our climbing. And what else do you get? Oh, early and ad-free episodes and all sorts of other bonus content. So thank you all so much. If you're a patron or a subscriber, you also get that warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing that you're helping me to keep the lights on over here in the podcast slash utility closet. Now, if you're not a patron or Apple subscriber, I would love for you to consider joining the Struggle community. I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. No worries, no pressure, but um, just stay tuned after the interview here and I'll give you the lowdown on that. But first, let's mind the gap with Tom Randall. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, Tom. Oh man, it's good to see you. I feel like, you know, whenever we connect, it's just this this contest of who's busier, you or me. And <laughs> I, don't know. I think you're probably taking the cake 
right now. But I just got back from Leavenworth, had an awesome, awesome trip out there. Have you ever climbed out there at Leavenworth? No, but I hear about it all the time from a few US friends and uh, I'll, I'll get there one of these days. It's mega. It's so beautiful. And, you know, not far from Squamish out there. It's just like the cutest town. Great for a family. I'm going to go back there with my family. And then, you know, the climbing's right off the road. Some awesome trad and uh, sports stuff. And then just beautiful granite boulders. So anyway, that was a great trip. I never boulder outside. It's only my second bouldering trip outside and also on granite. So I wasn't I wasn't like super focused on training for that, but I'm glad we did. I climbed a couple of classic V4s, which is my hardest grade to climb outside on a boulder. And I did them in a session, so I don't think it's the hardest grade I could climb bouldering outside. Right. But, you know, when you're only there for a few days, you want to be able to send some things. So I didn't try to push the top end beyond that. But my fingers are feeling snappy and powerful coming back. What's not feeling optimized is like the pump tank. So, you know, went back out to the red and I went from bouldering granite blocks to getting on a 90 foot 12B and it just ate me up and spit me out. And so I think a lot of my training is now going to be starting to focus on that. And so, you know, what Roz has me doing now is kind of, I was going from maybe a day of that, that longer term kind of route pyramid type stuff to now doing a couple days a week of the what I would consider maybe more like endurance, power endurance type training. There's still some like max hangs on the fingers one or two days a week. There's still like one moonboard session a week, which I'm, you know, very bad at, but I think it's probably good for like contact strength and all of that. But I think we're starting to program in more of the endurance type climbing and I'm starting to get out to the red more often. And so curious from your point of view, as we look at kind of going into the later spring, as temperatures are starting to work against me now as we move forward, and certainly into the summer, with a goal towards the fall, will I continue or do you think I should continue to build that really like Red River Gorge style pump, you know, superpower? Or should we continue to kind of work on what has classically been my weakness, which is just like top end max finger power, finger strength, which, you know, I'm kind of lower on the bell curve? A lot of how you tackle power endurance training and, or sometimes you can just term it as endurance training for root climbers comes down to the time periods that you're dealing with and the, the goals of what you're trying to achieve within that training cycle. So if we talk specifically about the kind of power endurance, which operates at your pump threshold, that stuff where you may, might be on the route. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, sustaining through a whole series of relatively easy moves, but you've got to do a lot of them, like classic red territory. That form of training and adaptation that you'll see from that in sessions really tends to peak out, depending on the individual, anywhere between eight to 12 weeks of training and once you kind of max out on that time period, what you're doing there is you're trying to continually kind of polish a level of base aerobic capacity you have and strength that you have. So strength endurance where you're getting diminishing returns on it. So you may well put in another four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks of really hard power endurance and threshold work on top of that after that 12 weeks has elapsed. And you just won't really get that much more out of it you, if anything, lack risk and ability to sort of detrain that top end strength 
and power that you have in that part of the season, you sort of lose a training opportunity. So in your circumstance is if you have exhausted and used that time period to get to that, what you would class as I feel fit for that longer end endurance route, and you've tapped out on that, typically you will then return back to your limiting factors or you might term them weaknesses for another period of training. And interestingly, it doesn't really matter even if you only have four to eight weeks to return back to that base period of training before topping it back up into fitness stuff again, because long-term physiological aspects of your climbing or your performance like strength, the very low end base endurance capacity is something that you'll work for literally decades if you stay in climbing that long. So it's like a cumulative effect that you want to keep coming back to and spending more time on just adding a couple more notches to that ability. So for you, you've got to be careful if you're always limited by strength to some aspect with your you know, high-end goals of going to 513 and maybe progressing through the 513s is you can't stay too much on that threshold work. So my answer to you is you are going to have to flux in and out of that approach. Got it. And is it is the science clear enough where you can literally work back from when you think you want to peak? So, you know, if I'm, tr- I'm trying to do a little bit of a mini peak right now because the spring conditions are really good at the red. We're still relatively low humidity, relatively low temperatures, and my route goals for the spring aren't at my limit. So the hardest grade climb is 12D. Right now, I'm just working on a series of 12B, kind of trying to build this pyramid out while also sampling some 13As just to see like, hey, is this the one? Is this the one I want to either put a little mini replica in my basement on or just get very familiar with over the course of the summer so that in the fall I'm putting, you know, red point burns in when the conditions turn good. So I'm not climbing limit limit, but 12B is really hard. I was just out last week and managed to send just my fourth. And so, and that took me three sessions. My goal is to try to get it so I can maybe do it in one or two sessions over the course of the next couple of months. So can one just work back from that and say, well, you know, he wants to perform pretty well mid May, or in the case of the fall, when I want to try to send the 13A, maybe late October or kind of through the month of November. And all it's going to take is about six to eight weeks of topping off that power endurance tank, knowing that the routes at the red are going to be very, they're not going to be, there's not going to be probably more than a V3 on, on any of these routes that I'm looking at, because I'm not a bouldery climber. There are 13As you can find that are more kind of bouldery and shorter, but, you know, really stay on you and more powerful. But the ones I'm looking at are going to be more in the 60 to 100 foot range, where it's just a pretty sustained, you know, jug haul through really steep climbing. Do I only need six to eight weeks for that? Or if that's a route that I'm choosing, will that power endurance phase be longer or more intense? Or is the science pretty clear where like it's diminishing returns after X amount of sessions of training, that type of energy system? Yes, I'd say... The science is reasonably clear and, of course, always in exercise science or sporting performances, there's an individualized basis that you have to tackle these things with. Everyone is somewhat different from others, but you are going to deal with windows where it's it's reasonably guaranteed how your body is going to respond to certain stimuli. But the, 
I suppose the trick of really productive strategy in terms of this approach that you or anyone would take would be to understand and know your body over time of how long does it take to get Ryan to a point where he's really fit for that strength level or someone else for their individual strength level. And one of the reasons why you may well do some really basic metrics in terms of testing yourself for string, finger strength versus what kind of duration that you can do at 60% of that finger strength on a fingerboard is a very basic way of understanding yourself as an athlete over the years. So you could say at any one time, whenever I'm at the ability where I get on a 20 mil edge and I add 50 pounds to my body weight, whatever that amount is, I can do a 60% of that for two minutes. That's what I would class as Ryan in a pretty good state. And you could test that theory by saying, well, I can do two minutes and now I'm going to do another four weeks of power endurance training on top of that. Will it go up to two and a half minutes? If you do those four weeks and it doesn't, or it goes up by five seconds, you start to become reasonably certain that's your kind of tank or your capacity of where you, your ceiling of where you can get to. So that's useful knowledge to then take back into subsequent training cycles. And you can kind of not scale that out, but you can transfer that sideways into the aspect that in any one season, if you came back and had a look at your finger strength in the fall, and now you've gone up to 30 pounds of added weight on top of your body weight, you now know that if you replicate that and do that 60% again, you should be able to still produce that two minute threshold. So if you're doing your power endurance and after eight weeks, it's still not at that level, that's quite a good indicator of, no, I need to push harder and I need to extend this out longer. And I suppose the long-winded answer is that we never have distinct guaranteed answers on all these things. It's always this process of do the training, test and reflect, understand how the body is responding to it, repeat, and just do that year after year. I've done the same with my own training is I've got these really basic benchmarks where I know that if I can, if I've got a certain level of bouldering ability or finger strength, I should be able to do this on some very basic endurance metrics. If I go and check those right at the beginning of kind of peak season and it's way off, I tend to one, reset my goals and expectations because I'm quite a way off. And then I'll go heavily into the power endurance training. I'll check back in it four weeks later. I'll see where it's at. And if it's in a really good place and I know that reflects what I've done two years ago, five years ago, whatever it might be, I'll go, no, this is the time. That's I'll stop on that stuff. Full projecting, I'm in really good shape now. So it's that kind of back and forth of useful information of how you tackle it. I really like that, man. I especially like it and haven't heard, because it's always hard for climbers to check their egos and reset goals, but how interesting to to go into one of those tests. And if it's way off from what your goals are to not necessarily just try to make up the training really quickly, although you do what you can, but you also may need to take a hard look at your goals and say, look, I may have a real bummer of a season if I continue to keep my mind and my heart set at this goal up here, but I know that my fitness isn't where it needs to be for that. Yeah, absolutely. Because all the athletes that I've worked with over the years are generally very good at managing expectations and finding a way to deal with those in a healthy way. You can look at anyone out there who 
you really respect and thinks is really gnarly, hardcore, can deal with any kind of setback. But if you really kind of look under the bonnet, what they're actually doing is they're very good at managing expectations and moving their goals around that. It just might not be obvious on the surface. And I think that's the way to stay in the sport long-term, be happy and fulfilled by it and keep progressing because ultimately you stay motivated and you got positive feedback. I appreciate that. And so just to do those check-ins, you're saying about every four weeks then is when that would be typical for somebody like yourself or for myself should kind of each month pop mm -hmm. on and do these. I think Roz had me do like 20 mil kind of power endurance tests at like 70%, 50%, and 30% of you know, max hang body weight plus like my max hang, which, you know, the max hang changes, right? So I'm not, do you retest the max hang every time? Or do you say consistent with what those, what those weights and percentages are month after month? So when you do any form of testing, you should really be testing your max hang at that time, because all these things are set at relative. It doesn't really make sense to always set a baseline of strength, but then as you get fitter or weaker, or stronger or whatever it might be over that period you keep talking with the same baseline so it, it should move over those tests and what she has you doing there is really a simplified form of critical force testing which is what we do with a load of the digital testing with elite athletes and what you get from doing that type of testing is you build up a profile of understanding where your the threshold is between the anaerobic work that you do and the aerobic work is and the type of work capacity that you have in those two zones, which is really useful for root climbers, because we know from looking at the data that root climbers will have a higher critical force threshold. So the how high you can push the amount of force that you produce aerobically will be higher in root climbers. And we have basic numbers to understand that if we see a metric of a critical force level of 30%, this is poor. We're in a a bad position as a root climber, come back and have a critical force threshold of 50%, a very nice position to be in. Probably unlikely that you're going to spend more time doing more endurance or power endurance training. Well, yeah. And when I reached out to Roz like a week ago and said, look, I'm still pumping off of these routes, you know, she, she came back pretty matter of fact and said, look, your testing is clear that you're where you need to be on your critical force. And we're going to continue to program where we're at, but you're going to be gaining more of that just getting on rock and it may be technique it may be mental like you know i may be falling off because i'm testing at what at least based on the lattice outcomes was like at a 13b level 8a level of kind of i think power endurance or the critical force metric there where i'm not i'm only working on 12b right now so one would think that i should be very comfortable in that range but i'm still kind of pumping off towards the top. And that just may speak to other areas that I need to focus on. And maybe it not, it's not as simple as just adding some more kind of route pyramids or something like that into my week. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the, I suppose the beauty or the, the detail of, of climbing is that it's a really complex sport and there are lots and lots of aspects that go into it. And I always enjoy the testing data aspect to performance in climbing because Actually, sometimes when you get a set of results back and they come back and they would indicate that compared to the rest of the climbing population, you really should be operating at whatever X grade and you are quite a bit off the pace in terms of the models, then this is normally a reasonably good indicator 
that you want to look at other areas of your performance because it isn't just finger strength. It isn't just power endurance of the forearm. There is movement aspects to it. There's tactics, there's mindset, there's all sorts of different things that go into it. There's other aspects to physiology, which affect climbing. And these just end up being signposts and they end up being very clear signposts if you're way off when you look in the data. And that's, again, itself useful knowledge, which you either go and do some self-reflection. You think about it yourself. Can you analyze yourself? Or you work with a coach who may observe you or they ask you a load of questions about how you're performing. Or it's just a peer group that's really informed around you. And you ask them and say, I've got these issues. I'm seeing these kind of numbers. Where do you think I'm sitting? Could I be focusing on this area here? Or am I completely wrong about it? Yeah. You know, something that comes to mind immediately along those lines is that I've been under kind of a a uniquely high level of stress the past, you know, month or two here with some work stuff that's that's come up and some family things and kind of a busy time of year. Probably haven't been sleeping as well. And I've heard you speak of this, I think it's on the Lattice podcast where you talk about allostatic load, I think that's the term. And that's even a question that Roz asks me when we start a new training block, kind of, can you rate your allostatic load? Maybe you could explain a, what that specifically kind of that, that term means from a coach's point of view, but also how that plays into programming training or expectations for top end performance. Yeah. So allostatic load, the simplest way to think of this is being any of the stuff which you would call your life outside of your training sessions, whether that's climbing or, you know, actual training in the gym or at home on your fingerboard. And that can be from work stress, family, relationships, food, sleep, etc. It's a really broad category of inputs that you have that go on in your life. And that's really everything that fills up your energy tank away from climbing and training. And all of those have an impact back into the response or the recovery or the adaptation that you see from training. And in the simplest term, if you were to take Ryan right now and strip out every piece of stress that you ever feel about anything, you eat perfectly, you sleep like a baby every single night, then you could argue that your recovery and the response that you get from the training stimulus would be as ideal as possible. We could then take the exact same Ryan and give you in a period of climbing, you could have a huge relationship breakup. You could have a bereavement in the family. You could lose your job. You could be working 16 hour days, seven days a week. You could be eating really poorly and sleeping really poorly. I would suggest in this situation, your allostatic load is very high, probably unbearably high, and you would see a negative net result from your training. So that load is so high, you're essentially in an overload position and you mm. chronically overload and your performance would go further and further down. And what we see in working with any athlete, whether it's a professional climber or someone who's trying to climb their first V5 or 511, is that allostatic load element is a very big determinant of the success that you'll see from the training that you put in. And I think it's unfortunately something which isn't understood or dealt with enough by climbers out there because the reality is that all of us in our lives, especially as adults, 
have a certain degree of allostatic load that you cannot get away from and control. And it's all about understanding what does it look like and how is that going to affect the training that I do? Is that a big difference that you see between weekend warriors and elite athletes who are focused on climbing all the time, who may live in a van. And, you know, I don't mean to minimize the potential allostatic load that any person has, because we all have our own things with relationship or stress or family things. But for weekend warriors who are working a full-time job, maybe have kids, I'm just speaking of myself here. Is it more common that we'll have a higher allostatic load than somebody who's in their 20s and, you know, kind of eats and breathes climbing? Yeah, most definitely. And I would say it's one of the biggest factors that you see with our aging climbing population that move from their 20s into their mid 30s and into their mid 40s, particularly as you start to get into positions where you have families, typically you have more financial burden and stress and you have much higher pressure jobs uh, across the board. You often see people in sort of management positions and project management, and that has yeah a significant impact on climbing. And I would say I have seen at least 10 cases over the years of coaching where I've really kind of dived deep into someone's lifestyle and how they're doing their training because they'll come to me and they'll go, I've got great metrics. I'm putting loads of hard work in. I love my climbing so much, but I am just not getting a result here. And every single time it's always down to the allostatic load. There is stuff going on that they're just not appreciating how big a factor that is. And on paper, you'd go, oh, they definitely should climb 513 every single day of the week, or they definitely should have seen really good strength improvements from that program they followed last year because it was structured perfectly, but they get, they're seeing nothing from it. It's allostatic load, which almost every time is the issue. So you start to blur the line, Tom, of climbing coach and climbing therapist when you get into managing allostatic load, huh? Oh, let's not get mad. Careful what boxes you open up here. I don't think Roz wants to climb into my head beyond helping me train my fingers, but I think that's an incredibly valuable thing for viewers, listeners to understand, which is we, we often think about how much time am I spending on the wall? Is it too much volume? Am I overtraining? Am I overreaching? And then maybe not thinking about the fact that you just put in three consecutive 15 hour days. You only got five hours of sleep and you're stressed out about a relationship thing that, that you're going through. And it's, it's all part of the same bucket and managing part of our non-climbing life could certainly help to give us better performance in our climbing life. I really like that. Yeah. That brings to mind a, a fellow hard climber in his early 40s here, Mr. Chris Sharma. And it seems like this guy's probably got a pretty low allostatic load because he seems to be living that good life in Spain and you know is quite trained in meditation and these kinds of things. But putting some of that aside for a second, Chris Sharma just sent only his second 15C, his 9B plus, and that was Sleeping Lion, of course. And at 42 years old, one would assume he's probably past his physical peak. If you're just looking at the physiology of a man at 42 years old, what lesson can the rest of us learn from the fact that this 42-year-old, a full decade after La Dura Dura, just sent 15C. Oh man, I, th I think there's actually a whole number of lessons to be learned here as such. And I think when I first saw that piece of news from Chris, oh, I think I saw it on the internet actually somewhere. It wasn't on social media or anything like that. It was on a web page. 
is I thought, ah, oh, isn't that brilliant that through all these years, he's made, maintained such a consistent amount of motivation and just putting in the time on projects on rock. That was the bit that stood out to me. It wasn't thinking, oh, wow, the grade or, oh, look at the line that's so hard or anything like that. It, you could just tell that he's stayed in his lane, in his zone of, you know, mastery expertise and has consistently done that for decades now. And what he's done there is a reflection of all that work that's gone in. And this is, you know, tip of the iceberg, really, of that stuff done. And I think what people should really take away from this experience is that the reason why Chris has been able to do that at 42 is that it's underpinned by decades of experience in that exact same thing, putting up really hard first ascents on the thing that he absolutely loves in a location that he loves on a rock type that he's performed on thousands and thousands of times before. And that's why he's done it. Where I would be very surprised and very interested would be if we were reading a piece of news and he just established a brand new big wall down in Patagonia, then I'd be going, huh, that's kind of surprising. But right now, this is just an entirely relatable and realistic tip of the iceberg of all the work that's gone in. So if you've got a everyday weekend warrior out there who's climbed, yeah, for like the last 20 years and they are still want to climb a right at their limit and do something which is what they did really hard 10 years ago, stay in your lane of expertise and experience if you want to do that tip of the iceberg stuff because it needs all the underpinning experience and history underneath it. Don't suddenly jump out of your lane. You're going you're gonna to have a hard time. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think, yeah, clearly his lane is putting up routes like that or, you know, deep water solo routes that are at the absolute cutting edge. That's his sweet spot. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see him establishing a 30 pitch big wall in, in Patagonia, although that'd be sick. I think he's going to leave that to the Tommies of the world. But th there is also the physiological element. So I think, you know, what you're saying here is keep the stoke, right? He's motivated to put up these incredible first ascents and put in time over a year on Sleeping Lion. And, and in order to perform at the highest level, you need to be right within that sweet spot. You need to be in the pocket of what you do best. But at the same time, at 42, certainly he's not as objectively strong as he was 10 years ago for La Dura Dura, I would think, at 32, or maybe 10 years prior for, I'm not sure when he, but when biography, realization was put up the first, you know, consensus 15A, or maybe I'm making an assumption, can one stay as strong objectively in their early 40s as they were in their younger years? Or is there something else that we weekend warriors can focus on? And this is a very selfish question because I'm about the same age as Chris and you and you know, but even if you're not in your 40s, even if you're in your 20s right now and you're watching, what is it that we can be doing to try to channel some of what Sharma somehow tapped into to be able to perform? What do you recommend to those of us who are in our 40s? Is there anything within our training that you think Chris has tapped into that we should be focusing on, whether we're that age now or we're staring it in the face at some point in time? Well, a totally critical thing is firstly for your aging climbing population and that's a very broad window. 
but I'm going to say late 30s and onwards, is maintenance of muscle mass. This is the kind of critical item of what you want to do. And I say that with a specific nod to the fact that you want to maintain muscle mass in the climbing specific muscle groups. It's not entirely beneficial to maintain muscle mass in somewhere which doesn't require that muscle mass. And then secondly is to maintain the level of strength that you have in all of the climbing muscle groups that you've developed, hopefully, through your teenage years, 20s, early 30s, because that's the time when it was easiest to develop strength. And you've got to remember that strength has a whole number of different facets in it, all the way through from the size of the muscle, the levels of recruitment, the muscle tendon unit density, intramuscular coordination. There's like a whole number of different elements that goes to that. And some of these are still very trainable and progressible, even through your 40s and into your 50s. So it's like a recipe of different items that you can take on this strength spectrum and you can still work some of them. Things like hypertrophy element and gaining muscle size, yes, that does increasingly get much harder as we age. And that is determined by some of the kind of the mechanisms, the biochemistry that occurs within the body. But we still have the ability to most definitely maintain, focus on that all the way through our aging years. And then secondly, is to look at the other aspects of our performance which are possible to make significant improvements on. Like for example, power endurance, endurance. You can make improvements in flexibility all the way through your latter years. You can make Im massive improvements with strategy, tactics, technique, mindset, all those things. And if you are a climber who's going through your late 30s, 40s, 50s, if you're able to just maintain that level of base strength that you already have, but move forward 1% on all those other factors every single year, you're in such a good position after 10 years of it. But the critical item is that most people find it really hard to stay motivated for that and really go after those things every year because it's not easy to do. But it's very productive approach to take within climbing. And it doesn't sound particularly sexy or cool, but chipping away 1% a year at five or six different parts of your performance is very beneficial. Yeah. Well, what's super motivating is seeing people in their forties pushing the absolute upper end of what can be done in the sport. So to see Chris do 15C means that it's not out of the realm for me to do 13C in a few seasons to keep that motivation and keep that stoke. Um, but also I think some really practical tips there that I appreciate, which is just keeping like that muscle mass working on probably, you know, off season, like hypertrophy and this kind of thing to, to, if nothing, if not, maybe make gains, essentially prevent declines. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, you will have a natural loss of strength that will occur over the years if you don't do that work to maintain. So making sure that you're really on it and really consistently all the way through those years is really critical. And the, gr the great thing is, it's not hard to do. There's proven methodology for doing this in terms of training. And the best thing is there are also aspects within strength that you can make improvements on. It just may not be as easy on all aspects of that strength spectrum. So yeah, number one thing, strength as you age. Love it. Awesome. Thank you. Well, that's a perfect dovetail into, um, if you just have a few more minutes, I've got some patron questions that I'd love to run by you. How are you doing? Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm 
psyched for some some answer, what's the, listener questions. Yeah, listener questions for Tom Randall here. And this one, kind of along the lines of what we were just talking about, Daniel Brewer asks, there's so much focus on physical training for climbing right now. What aspect of climbing separate from physical training do you think climbers generally have the most room for growth on? So you got to pick one here, Tom. I would say the... Oh, this is really hard to pick just one on. Which part of the climbing population? The whole climbing population. Yeah, didn't specify. Oh, geez. But non-physical. Can't be physical. Has to be something else that, that we can do to level up our climbing that goes beyond our physical training. Okay, I'm going to give an annoying answer here. For root climbers, I think the biggest thing that they should be working on is mindset or the psychology behind their performance. And for boulderers, I think it is technique. I like both of those answers. And I think for me, again, speaking just from N equals one, I think my biggest limiter for years was my fear of falling when I moved out to the red. And without getting an ounce stronger, as I started getting more comfortable with taking falls, I started just shooting up through the grade. So I think mindset there and mindset encompasses many things. It could be fear of failure or any number of other things. Did a great podcast with Hazel Finlay uh, last season on a lot of these items and Lore Sabarin this, this most recent season as well. So for um, Daniel or anybody else who's listening, if you want more information on that, I think that's great. And then technique for bouldering is a bit surprising. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so the issue that I see with a lot of climbers is that the there is now a culture of training in climbing, whether it's sport climbing or bouldering, but particularly in bouldering because there's that intensity element and people make this easy logical inference from this thing's really hard, I should do training and they get on with that. But then there's this big loss of efficiency where physically they're very capable, but they're not able to lay it down on rock very well. And I think this comes from a lack of focus and time on making sure they become really good technicians on rock and plastic. And in some ways it's extra exacerbated by the fact that so many gyms nowadays have much steeper, basic kind of jug hauling and more gymnastic climbing. I mean, it's fun for sure. And it's very accessible, but it's not the best for developing really good advanced technique. And I think there could be significant improvements on that front. It's really become excellent technicians and they'll see improvements without getting any stronger at all. Amazing point to highlight there, but especially for me coming off of my first bouldering experience on granite out in Leavenworth, I was like, where are the feet? You know, there's like, yeah. there's no feet. You go to a gym and there are all these giant buckets for you to stick your foot on. And then you get out there and, you know, it's these little, tiny little, there's like a chalk tick mark. And I'm like, on what? Am I putting it on the chalk? Is the chalk the foot? So, but then after a few days, I was like standing on things that couldn't even have imagined standing on. So I think that's a great point there. All right, let's move on here. Mark Powell asks, how would Tom adapt his training protocols for younger climbers? My daughter's 14, not far from Sheffield. So given the number of strong climbers around here, I worry about the balance between allowing her to climb as much as she wants and build strength and skill versus the potential long-term damage that climbing too often and trying to keep up with other young crushers on things like the kilter board or hangboard training might have. So she's 14. I'm not quite sure what would be considered a younger climber. That's obviously not an adult there. But 
Do you work with, you know, do you have clients that are, you know, kids and, and what do you say for Mark there trying to strike that balance between climbing volume and then keeping up with like the hard, more harder core training? Yeah, so, so commercially, we really moved away from working with junior athletes because we didn't feel that there was the best fit between remote coaching and being at a distance working with junior athletes, especially because a lot of them that would approach us would be international comp athletes. So we really just maintained a very close, small group that we have here in the UK that some of our coaches still do continue to work with in person. And it's kind of like a, I suppose, a select elite squad that we still work with the person, people, you know, that some people have known the names of Toby Roberts and Will's one of those people that came through that system of, you know, that in-person coaching, but it isn't, you know, where a lot of the work that we do as a company is, but tackling the question directly in terms of how you might adjust training for juniors is I'd say one of the most important aspects of physical training that you would look at in that age group is to be doing a re establishing a really good foundation of strength and conditioning work off the wall in complement to climbing. Because what you're often going to see is that, especially during the sort of changes when you're growing the fastest, your body's changing the fastest. You haven't got the growth plates healed as well, particularly across the body. And the repercussions of growth plate fractures are quite significant for juniors is reducing some of that very high intensity wall contact time and replacing it with complementary strength and conditioning work because putting on muscle mass again is really important during those early years so that it's then laid down and ready and built for when you become a late teenager an early 20s athlete and then secondarily to that i think there's a really important piece of the puzzle in enabling your junior climbers to have lots and lots of diversity of terrain that they climb on in those formative years, because what they're going to do when they evolve or mature in their climbing career, if they're going to become, you know, established comp athletes is they're going to focus down and they're going to get into their niche, which might be comp climbing on plastic. And as a result of when you focus and niche down, you strip out a load of the stuff, which isn't seen as directly related to what you're doing. The specificity needs to be there. And then you lose the opportunity to build up a huge base of experience. So I would say in those years, get on rock, get on as many rock types as possible, get on every angle of terrain, go to old school walls, go to new school walls, go root climbing. Even if you're really interested in bouldering, go bouldering. Even if you're interested in root climbing, go speed climbing, really build a huge base during that years because you won't regret it when you get to those later years and you're niching down particularly if you have periods where you think this kind of is, it's very exclusive in terms of what I'm doing. I wish I could have done more of that fun stuff or those, that diversity of stuff in my earlier years, but you've done it in that case. So that's, that'd be the main advice I think I'd give in that case. I think that's great advice for kids of all ages, including this 43 year old kid here. And when I had a conversation with Jonathan Segrist, we talked a little bit about it because he's climbed 514 on five different rock types. I didn't even know there were five different rock types. So the fact that, you know, he brought that up specifically in talking about what's made him, you know, su such a, an accomplished climber is that ability to climb on different levels of steepness from, you know, vert, very techy granite to super overhung limestone caves and everything in between. Great advice for the junior athletes and the kids as well, because it's also just a lot of fun. And for most kids out there, that's what climbing should be. For all kids out there, that's what climbing should be. 
Okay, last question, because I know we got to go. I'll, for everybody who's listening, uh, I got more questions here, but we'll save those for another chat. But Esteban asks a question that I think brings this kind of full circle for us. Speaking of allostatic load, and this is about you personally, how does Tom manage his time to be able to train, have kids, and run so many businesses at the same time? Oh, dear. Oh, God, how do I even answer that one? <laughs> uh, I don't like that question. <laughs> Oh, how do I manage it? How do I manage it? I kind of want to say the flippant answer is I don't manage it because the reality is that I am not achieving my real potential in terms of my climbing. I would say I, I would be a better climber if I didn't have so much on my plate. But in terms of how I actually make this functional and do all this stuff, because I, yeah, I would say objectively, I do quite a lot and I have a lot of responsibilities is it's a, a mixture of one. I'm very strict nowadays about really only filling my life with things that I genuinely enjoy. So all the business startup stuffs, I absolutely love it. It sounds hard work and it's stressful, but I love it so much. I am pretty organized about my time and where I put it and spread it. So I'm constantly moving around those things. I've got blocks of time and I do look a bit disorganized and chaotic, but I do actually stick to a calendar and I know when things are. And then I suppose two other things is that when I do something, I'm really focused. I'm really intentional about it. I'm all in. You don't see me just put a half-assed effort into anything particularly. I'm all there when it happens. And then... The other thing is that with any of this stuff, I'm always prepared to find a degree of, I suppose, consistency and longevity in them because I'm pretty sure that unless I do that, I won't get results out of them because I'm already spread quite thin. So for example, if I'm going to do podcasting, which I do a fair amount of, I made a very definite decision a couple of years back that I was going to stay quite focused and quite consistent on this. When you offer to do a podcast with me, I will invariably say yes, because I want to keep refining that skill set. I know I'm already practiced it. It's good at keeping me in the game. If someone said to me, oh, do you want to come onto a live YouTube thing next week on video? I go, no, I probably don't because I haven't practiced it a great deal. It's a distraction and it's not particularly useful. So I'd say those things are the kind of main ways of doing it. But honestly, I feel like one of those ducks, which is paddling so desperately under the surface, and I probably look reasonably in control. But good friends of mine, if you ask them, they'll say, yeah, Tom's all over the place. Well, you've been 100% present and so generous with your time here today, man. I really appreciate it. I love the duck analogy, by the way. The duck has been my that kind of calm and collected on the surface, but paddling like hell underneath it, that's kind of like been my my own personal kind of metaphor and mantra for much time. So I love that you you brought that up and you do it awesome, man. I really appreciate it. I love bringing that passion and that stoke to everything you do. Because then even though if you're working long, hard hours, at least it's doing something that you're enjoying. This has been a real yeah. treat as always, my man. Thank you. Oh, lovely. Love to see you again. And that wraps up another great chat with a guy whose allostatic load must reach to the friggin' moon, Tom Randall. 
Guys, if you're a subscriber or a patron, thank you so much for making this conversation happen and for submitting those questions that you did. Those were really fun. I will get to more of those next time that I connect with Tom, I promise. If you're not a patron, you can either subscribe right there in your Apple Podcast app if you listen on Apple, or if you get your pods elsewhere, you can just pop over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to check things out. For about the price of a cheap beer each month, you're going to get pro access, which means you get early and ad-free episodes, pro clinics, coach chats, swag, all sorts of stuff, and you will be supporting the pod and the climbers like me who are working our harnesses off to make it happen week after week. You can cancel anytime, no worries. So I'm just grateful for whatever support you can throw my way if you can. And if you sign up soon, you can submit your questions for Tom because he and I are gonna be connecting again in just a few weeks. Lastly, have y'all checked out The Struggle on YouTube? Oh my gosh, in our first month, we hit over 300,000 downloads, which has just blown my mind. I am so psyched. I am beyond grateful for the support that we're getting over there on the YouTube channel. We're releasing two videos a week featuring the biggest names in climbing as they break down important concepts to help all of us level up our training and our climbing. They're about eight minutes long and they're packed with really cool footage. Been working hard on this one. I hope you guys like it. Swing over to youtube.com slash at the struggle climbing show to subscribe and to see what's new. All right, the struggle makes us stronger. Be good out there, y'all.